Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulda, and I will not be talking to you today. Instead, I'm turning the microphone over to Dr. Allison Van Eenenim. Now, Dr. Allison Van Eenenim has been a guest on the podcast at least four times now. She's also been a leading voice in biotechnology and uh, biotechnology education with efforts such as her very prominent role in the documentary Food Evolution. She's also been featured on many different podcasts, uh, does a lot of writing, uh, and a, a lot of training in this particular area. She talked to a number of experts about several different topics that I won't give away the punchline. But it is really a very special episode. And you think back to TV, at least in the 70s, when they would talk about a very special episode, meant it was something like really socially poignant, like a. Today, on a very special episode of Happy Days, Potsy and Ralph Melf catch Joni doing downers. They tell the Fonz, and his relationship with Mr. and Mrs. C may change forever. Starring Tom Bosley and Marion Ross. <laughs> totally remember when they used to do that. But it is a special episode. And I uh, hope you really enjoy it. So thank you as always for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon. This is Alison Van Eenenum, um, and I'm at the University of California, and we're doing a special podcast here today in my office with three visiting scientists from around the globe. Um, they're here for the Institute of Food Agricultural Literacy uh, event 
at Davis, where we'll be talking about um, the importance of scientific communication. And I thought I would take advantage of that fact to interview uh, these three scientists and talk a little bit about the work they do um, and their interests in agriculture. Um, and so the first guest I'm going to interview is a, a pleasure to, to meet again, um, Emma Nalugima from uh, Uganda, who was actually associated with food evolution. She's a veterinarian um, that you see in the show, if you've seen that movie. Um, but she's a farmer in Uganda. And so welcome to the show, Emma. Thank you, Alison. And it's a great pleasure to be here with you. Um, Tell me a little bit about yourself, Emma. Now, I practice more. I practice uh, integrated farming on a small scale, and on just one acre. And in this one acre, I keep pigs, cattle, fish, p- chickens, and I grow vegetables as well, plus planting. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of animals on one acre. <laughs> How oh, do you yeah. do that? <laughs> uh, what I do is that, uh, that's why I say I integrate everything. So one thing that comes from, like, take for example, the manure that comes from the pigs helps me feed my chickens and my fish. And then afterwards I use the, the rest of the dung to put in my plantain and I grow very healthy plantain. And then the water that comes from the fish still helps me irrigate the planting and the vegetables. Wow. Okay. And um, so this one acre is irrigated or rain-fed or how do you get your water for the facility? Actually, where I stay, where I come from or where the farm is, is uh, we, we, are, we are always not having rain. Where the rest of the country is having rain, we don't have the rain. So we get our water from the ground. And then that's why I plow out with the water from the fish and also with the urine from the animals. So I use the urine from the animals. I, I, I dilute it with water from the fish. Then I have two things. I have water and I'll have manure. And that provides you nitrogen. Yeah, that's pro- so it provides me nitrogen. It will provide me water. Mm-hmm. And actually, because if I use the urine, it also helps me uh, repel pests that actually affect many of the, uh, affect the planting. So in a, in a way, as I'm using playing around with animal waste, I have water, I have manure, I have repellents for certain types of pests. Okay. Like, uh, nematodes. So it all works together then. Yes. So you um, practice organic agriculture, I believe. Yes, I do. Uh huh. So tell me how this all works together in your organic system. Now, first of all, when I feed the pigs. I get whatever comes out of the pigs, like the pig dung, is what I will use. So this is what I do. I get the pig dung, leave it out for about six to eight hours. And then afterwards, while I do that, I'm attracting flies because pig dung is a little bit smelly, but a nice smell. (laughs) (laughs) If you say so. (laughs) I actually tell people that... um, the smell of pig dung is like the biggest currency in my country is uh, a 50,000 shilling note. So the smell of a pig a pig dung is like the smell of a 50,000. Ah, <laughs> so pig dung smells like money to you. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah, it okay. does. So, so that smell attracts the flies and the flies lay eggs on, 
when they come, they lay eggs on the pig dung, and then after, f- then I play with the life cycle of a housefly. So after four to five days, I cover, I cover the, the dung, four to five. After four, after six, eight to eight hours, I'll cover it for four to five days, and when I open it, I have nicey juicy maggots, and then. <laughs> 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 you, you are kind of a science nerd, right? Like most people don't think maggots are really nice and juicy, oh. but in your brain they are, I guess. So, uh, and then they feed them to the chickens. Wow. So I don't spend money buying, I, I don't spend money on my chickens because they'll help me. Now my chickens do two things. They'll feed on the uh, maggots, but also they'll help me... Um, degrade the dung very fast. So instead of I waiting for one whole month for the dung to degrade, it takes me about a week or two. So then, and then I will introduce earthworms in the um, earthworms in the pig dung after it has been eaten by the chickens. So when I introduce the earthworms, these earthworms multiply and then I will still use these earthworms to feed on the chickens and my fish. So I also feed the maggots on my fish as well. So it helps me cut down on the cost I would have done if I was buying food, especially protein. And in my country, we compete with the, the, the animal protein we use in an animal feed is a silver fish, which humans use as well. So I kind of cut down on the competition mm. <laughs> for okay. protein and also on the cost because it's quite costly. And then, <clears throat> meanwhile, you very well know that whenever a living animal eats and drinks, it will excrete. So I also tap on the excreter, the excreter of the earthworms. So, and that excreter is called vermiliquid, which is very rich and uh, very nutritious also. We're so talking worm poo here, am I correct? <laughs> okay, just, just wanted to clarify wa- that. Worm poo, worm urine. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't know worms... Weed, but okay. <laughs> so, and then I'll tap that urine and I'll use it again as a fertilizer for my planting and vegetables. And it also acts as a, um, a pesticide. So, like, it will get rid of all aphids and all funny pests. So, this helps me. I don't have to spend on pesticide. And it also caught the, uh, it coats on the roots of the plantain so that things like nematodes don't eat on the roots of the plantain. So all this I do in this one little acre farm. Wow. Yes. And you feed your family? You have family? Oh yes, I have two girls, twins and a boy and my husband and of course in Africa you can't, one family is not we are not like Americans where it's just you and your kids and your husband. We have um other relatives. Extended family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, extended family. So we have quite many people who stay with us and we are able to feed and I'm able to take my kids to school using this one acre. I'm, I'm able to live a relatively comfortable life. And so where did you get your education and knowledge about how to make this one acre work for you? Uh, surprisingly, I did all this out of luck. Because I started farming when I used to keep pigs before, before I got married and before, but then when I got married, I gave birth to premature twins. So I had, I I stopped working as a vet. How premature were they? Uh, They were seven months. Okay. 
So so 32 weeks or so. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. yeah, 32 weeks. So I stayed home. I needed to stay home to look after them. Mm -hmm. So, and then being a vet, I, you know, being a vet, you're always up and about. So I miss being (laughs) the animal part. Twins didn't keep you busy? (laughs) They did, but, (laughs) (laughs) but that's, you know, like I said, in Africa, when you give birth, that's when earlier we're only two in our home but then I gave birth and you have extra hands because they are primers you need to wash you need to do what we don't have a lot of machinery so a lot of other people had to come on board so you need to feed them and I'm not working anymore I'm only depending on my husband so there was a lot to do so I decided to farm and that's how everything came and I started with uh, already had pigs and then I decided to grow plantain and then I decided to grow vegetables but all these things I was doing for my table so that I have food on my table. But because I had plenty of time on me, I looked after them well, and then there were more than I needed to eat, so I started selling them. Wow. Yeah. And so did you learn a lot of this? At, when you, you said you were a vet, so yeah. you went to, to university to get a vet Yes, I, I went yeah. to university to get a vet degree, but sometimes, you know, all this is just about animals. But then as you're looking out and looking at these things, take, for example, how I started keeping, how I started playing around with the dung, for the chickens because I used to look at these chickens like whenever I used to throw the pig poo somewhere in the corner I see these chickens run there and I'm like okay what are they looking for and then I looked and looked and then I saw them they're looking for maggots I'm like okay how and earthworms and whatever so I'm like what if I made this more mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting now it's I make as many like I can make 15-20 kilos of of maggots out of just a few kilos of dung. You're the maggot whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's mm. a great story. Um, and so are you're here to speak about your farm? Is, is yes, that? I'm here to speak about my farm. I think the topic is about some sustainability. Uh-huh. So maybe a few people have heard my story so that maybe it's one way to keep a farm sustainable and to do farming. And so what do you see as the key to sustainability? Uh, there's no one key. There's no one bullet, silver bullet to this. It's about making sure that you use different technologies to do this. Because while I'm doing all this, maybe I forgot to talk about now, these are the te- different technologies. I, there's vermiculture. Then I also have hydroponics because I feed my, my pigs and my cows on hydroponics. Then there's also, I, I do aquaponics. So that you, it's about playing around with different um, technologies available. And were you a science kind of geek growing up or what, what got you interested in pursuing this? Mm, no, I wasn't. I was just... <laughs> why, did you, why did you pursue veterinary science? Um, I actually didn't know that I loved animals long way before, but as normally when you get married, they, they, they post, they, there's something they do, the memory lane. Uh-huh. So, and it's only then that I saw that, oh my God, they started showing pictures of me since I was young, like with animals. And I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I, <laughs> I didn't, I loved animals. So I didn't know that I loved them that much, but I just found myself, uh, when I missed my points, I missed points to go the, to do medicine. So the next degree available was vet medicine, but I don't regret it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so... Uganda's a bit different to the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. What's when you come to visit, what's like the thing that most sticks out in your mind that's like, wow, that's really different? 
Ah, in terms of because there are different things now. <laughs> <laughs> My first experience when I came to the US uh, um, is yeah, I know I knew there's no matoke or banana or plantain, but then I didn't expect so much bread. <laughs> so much bread. Okay. <laughs> so br- bread's not a big part of the diet. Yeah, but then it was too much. We we used to cooking food all the time. So I, then they served us. They said, oh. Guys, it was still after conference, and they're like, "Okay, guys, we don't leave. We're serving lunch." So I was looking out, looking forward to this buffet lunch, and to my surprise, everything was bread. <laughs> 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 That's really interesting. So you mentioned matoke, which yeah. is a type of banana, yes. as I understand it. Um, and in Uganda, that's got a disease issue. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Now, matoke is the staple food of uh, not not the whole of Uganda, but now it has actually spread to the whole of Uganda. So, like, wheat or bread is here. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so that is what matoke is in Uganda, especially where I come from in the central part of Uganda. So, it is a big issue, and everyone, if you don't eat, like, if if you came to visit me and I don't serve you matoke, then, oh, my God. That would be really rude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would count me as a very poor person. How do you come to my place and I don't serve you matoke? So... It's something that we have to keep. It, it still comes again with culture and all that. So if, and now it has been affected by banana bacteria wilt. So many people whose livelihood depends on that actually are having issues and they are literally dying with their, no, with their plants because this is where, this is where puts food on their table. This is what takes the kids to school when they sell them at okay. So in the event that they've been affected by banana bacteria, wilt, then they're going to have issues with their whole life. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you have matoki on your one acre? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. That's the one. That's what I call plantain because I imagine not everyone's well, under... plantain. Okay. It's not really plant, but that's what anyone would... Uh, when I talk about plantain, then they would understand. Yeah, but it's, it falls in that species of plantains. Okay. So also in my office here, I have... Another person from Uganda, Nasib Magwanya. I think Magwanya. I yeah. <laughs> I think I say that correctly. Um, and perhaps you can talk a little bit about um, what you do, Nasib, in Uganda. Thank you, Alison. My name is Nasib Mugwanya. I work as the outreach officer for Uganda Biosciences Information Center, which is a communication hub for the National Agricultural Research Organization. And speaking about Matoke, my organization does much of the research around major crops like Matoke, cassava, maize, among other crops. So I spend most of my time communicating about our research to smallholder farmers and how it can benefit them depending on the challenges they're facing. And so you're, are you kind of like the, um, I guess, the United States Department of Agriculture research arm? Is that kind of the, the, the equivalent uh, organization in, in Uganda? Are you state financed? Correct. Yeah. So most of our funding is from taxpayers' money, Ugandan okay. taxpayers' money. And we are mandated to do basically research around major crops, and ultimately that research is meant to 
make Ugandans have more food on their table and also to sell a little bit of what you know remains to to get some income oh yes yeah and is food security an issue in Uganda oh yes uh, food security is a big issue and looking at what's happening globally you know from climate change declining soil fertility these are problems that are also affecting farmers in Uganda and definitely they're having an impact on how food secure mm-hmm. they can be. And what's your background? Where did you grow up and what did you study? Oh, cool. Uh, so I grew up in a little town, like one hour away from the capital, which is Kampala. And I attended a normal primary school. We call them <coughs> primary schools, mm-hmm. elementary. I didn't, you know, aspire to be a scientist. I didn't know what I wanted to be. But my background is agriculture science. And I specialized in agriculture extension and education. And for the last four to five years, I've spent most of my time talking about ag biotech and how it's relevant to Uganda. Yeah, that's what I've been doing and most so of the time. No wonder we get along well, because <laughs> yeah, agricultural agree. extension is what I do too. <laughs> cool. Um, and so with regards to ag biotech, so talk a little bit about the um, banana the, or the matoki that is um, developed to be resistant to the bacterial wilt that we were talking about earlier with Emma. Oh, cool. So as Emma said, a huge population in Uganda depends on matoke, as how Americans are having lots of bread in that. that <laughs> actually, just remembered when she was talking about matoke, when I went to say bye to my mom while coming to the U.S., I found her when she had prepared a small meal of matoke. And guess what else was in that meal? Nothing. Other than, <laughs> you know, I, and then I asked her, you know, your, your meal is not balanced, you know, where are the proteins here, where are the vegetables? And she told me, no, this is fine for me. So it's interesting when you come to conferences in America and elsewhere in the world and you tell people that there are people who are depending on eating one meal a day or like a specific type of food. And if that food has only one nutrient, that means that person is only getting that nutrient. So when you hear of technologies like biotech, which can, you know, add in more nutrients so that if someone eats matoke only, they can have proteins, they can have vitamins. It's, it's not luxurious. There are people who are only eating one type of food. But to go back to uh, your question of how my organization is trying to address this problem, definitely there's a lot of ways how this challenge of banana bacterial wilt has been addressed, starting from conventional technologies to upstream tools of science. 
and what we are seeing so far the best tools that are helping to save the matoke from this disaster of wilt have been tools of biotech so there's a good place for this tool to address challenges like banana bacterial wilt making matoke more nutritious and they these tools should be given a chance so that more people depending on these foods can have access and these but the bacterial wilt resistant bananas have been developed by Ugandan scientists for Uganda oh, correct yeah and so what is the hold up to get them to the farmers if if you've got i think you have resistant bananas or a matoki so what's what's the hold up so the hold up right now is the policy environment Uganda ratified the Katagena protocol on biotech and biosafety which requires us to have a law in place so that farmers and consumers can have access to products of biotech and we don't have that law it's still in parliament being debated and the challenge has been that this global ant biotech conversation has gone down to the developing world and it's affecting how quick policies that would allow technologies like biotech to reach farmers get to the people who need them most so the biggest challenge right now is having an enabling policy environment which means having a legislation that would allow farmers and consumers have access to this banana resistant to wilt. So I I thought around Christmas time there was some um news that suggested there was going to be a biosafety law in place. So has has something happened since then that is blocking it? Oh yes. Oh so what is happening currently? We were excited when parliament passed the bill. So the bill was passed and then it was waiting for the president to ascend like how i don't know how it happens to in, in america but when bills you know pass parliament the president signs and then it's a law but what happened as we were excited that parliament has passed the bill the president didn't sign the bill and pushed it back to parliament for revision and much of this was as a result of the and biotech activism you would see that the president's uh pres- the president not signing was an influence of activists making it seem there was something wrong with this technology and so we are now at that point where we are waiting for parliament to look into the president's concerns which were not really based on good science but rather misinformation mm. and a lot of you know, so the kind of the fear mongering that we have here in, in the first world and so uh are the activists that are that are doing this are they coming from where are they coming from that's a good question so it's a mix of global influence because much of what happens in the developing world 
is that most non-governmental NGOs are funded from organizations from abroad. And you would not explicitly find them saying we are anti-GMO, but they would disguise under being for farmer rights to save seed and what that means actually is them trying to oppose any technology that they conceive as trying to take away you know farmer rights and so that's how they've managed to touch the feelings of people they make it seem like newer technologies are dominated by corporations and so if they're given a ground in places like Uganda, smallholder farmers are going to lose their rights. So it's majorly local activists that work in close associations with and you know biotech movements abroad. And so that that corporate narrative doesn't really seem to fit with the organization you work for, which is the government researchers developing solutions for the farmers in Uganda um, and so when these if these trees were ever to become available what would be your distribution plan um, is it is it to give these trees to the farmers or how would how would that work if you could uh, allow the technology to be used well, that's a good question and as you say the, the, the good news about what is happening in Uganda that the organization doing research around biotech is a government agency and what that means if the, the, the varieties or the technology is ready to roll out the same rules of the game that have been applying to other previous technologies because we're not starting with GMOs only we've been rolling out conventional varieties and if small scale farmers have been getting them through other government entities so we have so we are the research entity and then there's the extension entity of the government so meaning the same rules that have been governing previously around distribution will be the same rules that are going to apply when the GM technologies and the products of GM are ready so nothing new is going to happen that right. because this, you know because we've researched this using biotech there should be different rules of distribution no it's going mm -hmm. to be the same rules and so are you hopeful that this kind of impasse can be b b resolved yeah i'm quite optimistic that it will be resolved but it's quite frustrating seeing the potential of this technology and how much it can help with some of the major problems facing farmers and it cannot get to the end users that fast because of you know a few vocal activists who are not actually farmers but you know well-fed people both in the developed and developing world trying to you know, make decisions for those who need the technology most. That's someone who uh, spends most of time, my time talking to farmers, I would tell you that every time you talk to a farmer out there, when they hear you're from a research institute, they will tell you, I've 
had this problem with my matoke it wilts i've had this problem with my cassava it you know gets rotten and i can't even feed it to animals do you have a variety that can address this problem so no farmer would be like do you have a gmo variety do you have a conventional variety a farmer would be very practical to ask for a solution and it's upon you who is coming from the research institution to look at the various options you have and say well depending on what i've had looks like your matoke is having this problem and this is so far the best variety we have so it's it's quite sad that you know the folks out there who are anti GMO seem to speak on behalf of farmers but when you get to interact with farmers they're not even thinking about a GMO f- option but rather a solution you have given the challenge they're facing at the time right yep I, I hear what you're saying and I think um, we'll just take a, a brief break now um, and when we'll come back we'll speak to our third scientist who's in the office here Hey everyone, this is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you listen to this podcast, you're probably an awesome person who's probably found themselves in a debate or two about the validity of genetic engineering and its use in food production. You may have even noticed the same problem I've been picking up on. There's lots of good information out there about genetic engineering, but very few people who need to see it are exposed to it. Well, I'm making videos that lay people like myself can actually understand and digest. I'm a filmmaker, so this is my contribution to science communication. They are the perfect thing to post on the wall of that friend you have. You know, that person who just can't seem to grasp the awesomeness of GE crops, who maybe gets hung up on things like chemicals or Monsanto or whatever. The videos I make cover a wide variety of topics, and you can watch them by searching No Ideas Media, remember that's no as in knowledge, on Facebook or YouTube. The videos will likely cover what you already know, but the point is, we gotta share them with people who don't know. The mission at No Ideas Media is to be pragmatic, not dramatic. So help us spread the right information about genetic engineering. Thanks a lot. This is Alison Van Eenenum at the University of California, and we're going to continue uh, the discussion here with three scientists who are at UC Davis for the Institute of Food Agriculture Literacy um, Program on Scientific Communication. And my next scientist uh, is Marlene Ortez Brokal. Did I do a good job with that? Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> um, and tell us about yourself, Marlene. Well, um, I recently got my degree, uh, my PhD. I was working on a on a project um, which was supposed to engineer rice in order to make it a, ni- a nitrogen fixing plant. Ooh. So, uh, well, luckily that's over for me because it was a long way and uh, it was really interesting. And uh, right now I decided that I wanted to take a different uh, path uh, and instead of continue with uh, research in academia, I wanted to get into the regulatory world around uh, plants and agriculture in my country. And I recently got a job at the Mexican Seed Association and I'm going to be uh, in charge of communication and in charge of uh, 
uh, molding the regulatory um, environment around the seed uh, industry there in Mexico. So being in the lab wasn't frustrating enough. You've decided to go into science <laughs> communication and regulations. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I did it because I, I used to be one of those scientists who were only behind the, the, the lab walls. And I never knew all the other things that happened after somebody did some, something in the lab or developed something in the lab. And uh, I, I actually came to know uh, all about all this when, when I came across the Cornell Alliance for Science, and that's where I knew that all the challenges out there for people to know about uh, facts and uh, all the science illiteracy that it, we have out there, especially in Mexico, we have a lot of issues around uh, these topics and... Uh, Normally, people who are not, uh, who do not have the knowledge, or who are not, uh, uh, yeah, who, who do not have the knowledge around this, are the people who make the decisions and who are advised by people who do not have the, the knowledge. So, I wanted to go there and see if I can make a little difference at least. Why do you think it's such a problem in Mexico? Well. Mexico is a very one of the most um, corrupt countries in the world, and uh, yeah, most of our decision makers did not even get to the places they are in because they are they have uh, you know degrees or didn't even go to school. We have uh, deputies who did did only the high school and. They don't know. They are just there for the money, and they really do not care about uh, the people they are working for. And um, we also have a lot of groups, or maybe not a lot of groups, but we also have groups who oppose technology, uh, especially around um, new technologies that would improve maize uh, and well, that is a big issue in Mexico. But, and we also have a, almost half of our population are very poor, is very poor. And, uh, well, we have, it's a big circle. And, mm. and so you mentioned the Alliance, Cornell Alliance for Science. Can you tell me a little bit about that program and, and your involvement with it? Yes, well, it is a very interesting and exciting program that uh, Dr. Sarah Venja created, uh, viewing that, uh, well, all the problem I'm, I'm talking about, that there's all these cool developments that, that could alleviate all the problems, or not, not all the problems, but several problems uh, around agriculture. And uh, she knew that there, there's a huge need for people who is involved in all this chain and for people who are going to make the decisions around this, that there, there's a lack of knowledge around this and there's a lot of opposition and the opposition is winning a lot of uh, room uh, around all these topics. So it's more to, to spread the word about the benefits that biotechnology can bring 
to agriculture, especially in the developing countries. So I came as a fellow in 2016, and I met another Mexican uh, people there who were interested in the same things that I was. And, uh, well, now my involvement in that way is that we came back to Mexico and we formed, like, our little Alliance for Science in Mexico. That's not our name. Our name in English would be Mexican Scientists uh, Allied for Knowledge in Agriculture. So we try in our time, because we are also busy people, we, we, we do this as, a vo as volunteers, and so we try to get involved in as much events as, as we can to talk about agriculture and to talk about uh, genetic modification in crops and to talk about maybe just about DNA or just about <laughs> the environment or global warming and how, how can all these technologies can work and we get involved in debates. And also we try to, we are trying to become like a reference. Like, for example, if you are a journalist and you want somebody or somebody who is um, really experiencing one topic to come to me or to us and we can connect you with people who are experts in the fields you're looking for around agriculture. And maybe you can have a good sources of information instead of just going to people who maybe do not know a lot of about the topic. So that's what we are trying to do in Mexico. Wow, what a concept, asking agricultural scientists about agriculture. <laughs> it's a global problem, I think. It seems like everybody gets asked, except the people that know agricultural science and farmers, you yes. know, and so it is, it's a common problem in the United States as well. Um, and so I want to um, open it back up to Nasib, who's sitting alongside Marlene here, because you also were uh, associated with the Alliance for Science as a fellow. Um, and so tell me about your experience and, and what is it that we're missing in science education and, and how can we do a better job of basing our decisions on objective facts instead of fear and misinformation? Oh, thank you, Alison. Uh, I was one of the 2015 fellows with the Cornell Alliance for Science, and it's been one of the most enriching experience in my career as an agricultural communications person. And part of my time as a fellow and my post-life as someone who had to put to good use of the skills acquired in communicating science in a way that benefits the, the end user and in this case me who uh, talks to farmers and you know interacts with the public oftentimes is that facts alone don't matter when it comes to topics like biotech that are very controversial. There's been a lot of fear and misinformation that has been created. And the most important thing is to always, you know, find a common ground with those who are opposed. Because I've realized that those who are opposed to GMOs actually seem to care about the same issues that we who are, you know, pro-science, pro-solution care about. No one wants a starving population unless 
someone is a psychopath. But I think yeah. we, we, you know, we, we define what we think is the best way to, to address the problem. And, and, and I feel like programs like the Cornell Alliance for Science are trying to, you know, create that space for, you know, these voices that seem to, you know, differ on how to solve, you know, problems like hunger, malnutrition, and, you know, other, you know, big challenges to, to always look for, like, that common ground that we all want a more food-secure world. How can we use the best tools of science available to address that? So, to me, that has been a very good a good achievement, learning how to sit on a table with people who you differ with and forget about you being pro-GMO, anti-GMO, and, you know, look at, you know, the commonalities you have in taking the conversation around that. I'd like to, to put a couple of questions that I often get in audiences from America um, to see what your perspective is in answering these questions. So one question I often get is that we produce enough food now to feed everybody on earth and it's really just a distribution problem and that we don't need to produce more food or we don't need biotech solutions because we already produce enough food. How do you respond to that? I'll start with you, Marlene. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I also get that a lot. But I think I have gotten that a lot from the people who are have easy lives and who can just go to the supermarket or and even they can choose to which supermarket go to the to the cheap one or to the more expensive one. They can really choose. They have a lot of choices instead of they really don't know that I think that they don't even know how hard it is for the people who produce our food to produce it and um, regarding my country like many I already said that most almost half of our population are poor and I really don't have the number but a lot of these people are subsistence uh, farmers and who, 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 who struggle a lot to produce the food they are going to have all year. And in Mexico, what they produce the most, these subsistence farmers, are is maize and beans. And uh, if if they don't, if they lose their 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 crops, they will not have anything to eat. So here, yeah, maybe we as people who live in the city and who can just go to the supermarket and buy your food, we can say, yeah, I have to be conscious about the food waste, which is also a problem. I'm, I'm aware of that. And, and me, myself, I try to eat everything of what I have in my fridge and I try not to waste anything because I'm conscious about that. But these people also have to know that we need to provide the tools to the people who produce our food because many of them, at least in my country, depend on the food they produce to survive. And this is not a problem of distribution. This is a problem of, you know, pests and uh, it didn't rain, so they will not produce anything. So these people do not have the problem of food waste. They have another problem. And and 
people like us who are who have a say in the conversation saying that the problem is not implementing or deploying uh, these technologies but is food waste well they might be right in, in so, at some in some uh, amount but they do not have the other part of the picture in their heads and they need to understand this so yeah and what about the ugandan perspective either of you want to touch on that Emma. Uh, um thank you now like Marlena said it uh, you guys are well endowed you have it all okay so that's why you can afford to say okay uh, too much too little you know you can afford to to do so much or to say anything but there's someone out there in these developing countries who actually an example I'm not saying his mom but he, he gave us a, a, a good example his mom is she stays in the city she, but all she know all she knows in her life it's matoke and this matoke is just you said it was matoke and then no sauce so then you can't start saying so with all the supermarkets around that is what she had okay and then for you because in the in the in the western part or in the developed world everyone will be like okay i can do this like, like malina said now here in uganda we even go ahead that all children just like actually most children of our time or our children or even maybe my time us we know where food comes from <laughs> but children born by us and by other people of this generation don't know where food comes from they know all food comes from the supermarket so i can either go to whole foods or whatever so they for us in this other in, in our world it's uh we don't really have the whole foods but we have different supermarkets and everything but other people can actually go to their gardens people can't even afford to go to the supermarket so if i have this little tiny garden that can give me some vegetable that can give me some matoke that can give me um i'm okay I don't even have to go to the supermarket. Right, so you're saying those subsistence farmers are providing all the food for their own family. They don't have the resources to go to the supermarket and so either they produce the food or there is no food for that yes. particular family. Yeah. And so one of the criticisms I've heard um, as it relates to the Matoki is that the reason that there's banana wilt disease is because of monoculture. How do you respond to that? Um, I, d I don't really know actually how banana bacterial wilt came, but it's I don't think so because we have different... different uh, in Uganda, we don't actually do monoculture like you, you in the States whereby you just find someone is a corn or soy farmer only. We do all these things... Um, it may not be as integrated as me as <laughs> I do on my farm, but with your work <laughs> <laughs> but they do it uh, it's rare it, it's actually the monoculture is just coming up now, but a long time ago, like in my culture, someone needed to have a chicken or two or three, someone needed to have a goat, someone needed to have matoke, someone needed to have coffee. It was like a prerequisite for this person in this car in this in the central region of Uganda to have all these things. Why? The chicken will give you eggs, that's protein. The goat will still give you meat. And uh, the matoke is a, is a 
staple food, but coffee is a cash crop. So it was rare. It's the, mo- the, the monoculture is coming from the Western world. So people, we like coping so much, so, so many things. But the beauty is that we don't even have that land to do all this big, this monoculture. Mm-hmm. But Nasib can elaborate. No, I, I would like to go back to the issue of whether you know we are producing more, and the the problem is not that there is not distribution. N- yeah, the the problem being a distribution thing. Uh, you know, there is some nuances to that question. If you are here in the United States, I feel like okay. You guys maybe have enough, and the problem could be that the distribution channels need to be fixed, and you know the food gets to everyone. I don't think it applies to the developing world to look at it that way. I agree that food waste is part of the problem, but again, w- another way of looking at it when you say we need to fix the distribution there's no easy answer to that and it's such a complex thing to do and also I'm wondering if you're saying we need to distribute are you saying okay let's see how we take this food down to the developing world and how is that gonna you know help to address you know the the long term you know, issues of people being with uh, food. So I would rather, you know, all tools that can help as we fix distribution, we can also, you know, use and embrace uh, tools like biotech to help address some of these problems as we also fix other Right, so kind of it's it's a yes and solution. It doesn't have to be a choose one of the following. Um, And I think that kind of dichotomous framing where it's, you know, either this or that is just not how agriculture works. It's always um, looking at, you know, what you can do to address the problems in in an integrated Mm -hmm. way, as we've discussed. Yes. So, Um, yeah, I would only like to add that, yeah, maybe that is today. Like, we produce enough food today to feed the people that are here today. But in, they have said that in 2050, we're going to be 9 billion people in the world. So now we have to produce more with the um, same amount of land, maybe. So it's worth the, to try. It's worth to try every tool in the box, like we were saying, to produce more with less in order to be able also to feed the growing population for the coming years. So it's not cool to say, we are okay this way, and uh, let's just stay like that. Mm-hmm. So I feel very privileged to have you three in my office, to be honest. Um, and I, I think it's such a special thing to have the views of scientists in the developing world and often that voice is not part of our global discussion around food and agriculture. And so 
I like to finish up by um, turning the, the program over to you and are there any final comments that you would like to say um, whilst you're sitting here in my office in Davis um, on behalf of um, the countries that you're uh, coming from? Um. Uh, let's keep in mind uh, whenever we're making these decisions, uh, whatever we decide to to go for in terms of uh, decision making, let's think about the developing world because for some reason we follow what you guys do. So if you say, for example, if... Um, either politicians or laws or different things, whatever is said. Like an example right now, the, the big issue is the GM or anti-GM, all that. So if we say no GMOs or no using these technologies, but then they might not be good for you, but they might be good for a certain developing country. An example, Uganda, when it comes to banana bacterial wilt, uh, an example is when it comes to banana bacteria wilt, coffee, uh, cassava, and all that. So we have to keep that in mind when we are deciding on whatever we are going to spread, saying that this is the best for the world. Well, I would just like to say, either if you are on one side or the other, that it's very important to keep your mind open, to keep your mind open to new things, or to new ideas or at least open up to listen the other people not just like the people who are always with you and you're all only there in your echo chamber this is very important to change uh, minds or to 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 arrive to an um, to an agreement or to to produce to construct it's always very important to keep your mind open And in this case, it's keep your mind open about science and about technology because we are here today like using things that were developed by, through science and through technology. And maybe many years before, uh, people would not have accepted it. But seeing that it brought benefit, it's, uh, th this is why we are using it here. And also... Um, It's, you know that it comes with a little risks. For example, if I pour water on this microphone right now, we might have uh, an accident here. <laughs> but uh, we, we can know these risks, but we can also learn to manage them. So uh, just think about that. Okay, well, I'm glad you're not pouring water on the <laughs> microphone because that would upset me. And we'll finish up with you, Nassib. Yes, my final thoughts, and I think I've said this previously, and also Dr. Sarah Ivan just said this during one of the panel discussions, that the conversations around food and farming, especially in the devolved world, have ripple effects in how policies around food and farming in the developed world, in the developing world, Uh, a shift. So, as someone may have the luxury here to be opposed to GMOs and being vocal about that, 
inadvertently it's gonna affect someone who might uh, need these technologies in the developing world so we need to reflect more on how we oppose some of these technologies in science and at the end of the day if I were to hypothetically create two people in this world and where every one of us can choose to fall we can have those who would always find a problem with new technologies and what they can do and then we can have those who are pro solution so the choices for one to make whether you want to belong to a world which is always you know criticizing and you know finding problems with solutions or you want to be part of the group which is embracing of solutions and also letting uh, people choose and see what works for them so that's you know my final remark choose the world you want to belong to uh-huh. do you want a world of being always whining and complaining or a world where your pro- solution on whatever issue think about that and that's it spoken like a true agricultural scientist <laughs> trying to find solutions to farmers problems and I think that's kind of where we we have that uh, that in common and uh, something we all work towards so thank you the three of you for spending some time chatting to me here and um, I look forward to hearing your comments at the conference tomorrow thank you thank you thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast send your suggestions for guests comments or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.